Merry Christmas, Grace Fellowship. I want to start off with some good news, right? I'm the preacher. The preacher's job is to bring the good news. So here is the good news. That video that we had technical difficulty with at the beginning is going to be shown at the end. We got the difficulty fixed. We got it covered. But so, you know, I don't know if this is bad news, but you're going to have to stay for the whole sermon in order to see it at the end. So it's going to be at the end of the service. Hang around. You get a chance to hear from some of your Grace Fellowship family members and uh, everybody's giving Christmas greetings. So really looking forward to that because it is the Christmas season. And during the Christmas season at Grace Fellowship, we always try to sort of focus our attention in on some aspect of the meaning of Christmas, something about the Christmas story, something from a different angle than uh, in years past. And this year we haven't been talking about wise men and we haven't been talking about angels or shepherds or, or stables or, you know, uh, teenage pregnancy or any of the things that we normally talk about in the Christmas story. But instead, we've been focusing on two key passages of Scripture that teach us something about the meaning of Christmas. And, and the first one in the New Testament is in John chapter 1. And I would say John chapter 1 gives us a theology of Christmas. A theology is basically a study of what God has revealed about himself. And in John chapter 1, we see this revelation of who Jesus is, and we get a bit of the theology of Christmas there in John chapter 1. The other passage that we've been talking about is in the Old Testament, and it predates the John passage by almost 800 years. And yet, it too is this beautiful picture of Christmas. It's in Isaiah chapter 9. And instead of being a theology of Christmas, I would say it's a study of the impact of Christmas. I mean, what difference does it make that this child was born and laying in a manger in Bethlehem? What's the impact of that on our lives? And we've been looking at that in Isaiah 9. And today we're going to return to Isaiah 9. Uh, because I want to read the whole passage for you. We've been just focusing on verse 6. But I want you to join me. Turn your Bibles to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9. It's in the back half of the Old Testament. It's a big book. Thumb through. You should be able to find it. Or remember, there's a table of contents right in the beginning of your Bible. It's easy to find the books if you just look them up. Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to begin in verse 2. And we're going to read all the way through verse 7. Join me. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. The light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nations. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. And every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
It's so important when we're looking at a specific verse of Scripture or even a section of the verse to get the context of the rest of the passage. See, he's talking about how the, you know, the warriors are no longer going to be necessary. The war is going to end. The oppressor is going to be taken away. All of that kind of stuff. And then he brings this familiar passage, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And we read about that. You see, we need some historical context if we're really going to understand this. I, I think I've told you before, this was written uh, on or about 740 B.C., about 750 years before the coming of Christ. Now, what you may not know, unless you're a great student of the ancient history of Israel, I mean, most of us don't even know our own U.S. history, so I'm guessing you may not know this, that around this time, 740 B.C., they were in the middle of a civil war. Israel had been at war. They had split as a nation. There was the north and the south, and they were fighting against each other. They were a divided nation. Now, just to give you some perspective on this, uh, if you remember your 10th grade history class, you will know that the U.S. Civil War, the most devastating war in U.S. history, lasted four years. Four long, devastating years. And America is still not fully recovered from it. Well, the civil war that the nation of Israel was in at the time of Isaiah had already lasted 225 years. For 225 years, the north and the south had been divided. They had separate kings. They had separate laws. They, they often went to war with each other. And when they weren't at war with each other, they were at war with the other nations around them. They were... A divided nation with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. On top of that, in both north and south, they had had a series of bad kings, bad political leaders, if you will, who had led the nations further astray from God's plan for their life, just making matters worse. Idolatry had become rampant in both the northern and southern kingdoms. These people had done exactly what God told them not to do. They were the people of God. They entered the promised land. He said, don't intermix your culture with these people because you will become pagan. And that's exactly what they had done. False gods were being worshipped in both the northern and the southern kingdom. The nation was a mess. Secularism was the rule of the day. There was division among the people. There was constant skirmishes and war. Basically, the nation that God had started, the nation that God had blessed, has turned away from him at this time. And in a wholesale way, they are no longer walking with him. And they are suffering the consequences that come when you turn away from God. Imagine a nation like that. A nation that God has blessed, right? A nation where God was once welcomed, where God was once central, where God was once worshipped by the majority of the people. A nation that has seen the immense power of God exercised on their behalf when they needed him the most has in, in a dramatic way turned away from him, thrown him out of public life, right? Thrown him out of private life. And now there's turmoil and there's division among the people and there's fear and darkness everywhere you look. I mean, wow, imagine living in a time like that. 
Maybe you don't have to imagine. It feels kind of hopeless, doesn't it? It feels kind of hopeless when God has been removed from everything and instead has been replaced by tumult and um, chaos and division and hatred. But guess what? God is incredibly patient with his people. And God had made them a promise. And God had a plan all along. And by the way, God still does. He hasn't changed in the least. And that, my friends, in a nutshell, is the message of Christmas. You see, it was through Isaiah and his contemporary prophets that God spoke into that dark time with a message of light. Look again at verse 2 with me in Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You see, the light of the world had not gone out. And this message from Isaiah was a reminder that the darkness was not going to last forever. That God was going to do something to chase away the darkness. And as we saw last week in John chapter 1, it was a very dark time in Israel's history that God burst on the scene in that very first Christmas. What was the hope of Israel at the time of Isaiah? Say it with me. Jesus. What, what was the hope of the nations at the time of the birth of Christ? Jesus. What is our hope, our only hope today? Jesus. I'm starting to feel like a cheerleader. Give me a J, give me an E. Jesus, 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 right? That's our hope. That was their hope then. That was their hope 2,000 years ago. And that is our hope today. It may be an ancient prophecy uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 9. It may be an ancient prophecy leading up to an ancient story that to us seems so far in the past. But Jesus, the light of the world, Jesus, the hope of the nations, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus, the babe in the manger, is still the best and only hope for mankind today. That's the message of Christmas. So, the focus of our study has been Isaiah chapter 9, Verse 6, last week we looked at this. We said, he is a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. And if you didn't catch that message last week, I encourage you, go back and listen to it. I don't have time to catch you up if you didn't do your homework. Go back and watch it on your own. Because today we're going to get into the second half of that list of four titles for the Messiah. And this week we're going to talk about Jesus, the eternal father. Jesus, the prince of peace. And let's begin with this title, Eternal Father. And, and for us to really understand this, I, I want to talk a little bit about the definition of terms, right? Because uh, in some of your Bibles, it says Eternal Father. And maybe in other translations, it might say Everlasting Father. Is it the same thing? And if not, which should it be? Well, let's define some terms, right? Let's first talk about what it means when something is everlasting, 
Everlasting means it goes on and on and on without an end. Everlasting means it shall not pass away or cease to exist. There are some things that are everlasting. Now, it's a short list. There's not a lot of everlasting things. But there is a list of things that are everlasting according to Scripture. The first everlasting thing is God. God is everlasting. He will go on and on and on and on and on. There is going to be no end to him or to his reign. God is everlasting. Another thing that is everlasting is the word of God, right? The, in, in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8, it says that even though the, the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God will endure forever. So we've got God and his word. And then there's one other thing on this short list of things that are everlasting, and that is human souls. The souls of men are everlasting, right? We're going to go on and on and on. So that's our list. It's a short list. Everlasting things are rare. And so when you find something that's everlasting, man, we got to pay attention to that because those are the things that are the most valuable. Those are the things that are the most significant. Those are the things that are going to go on and on and on for eternity. Everlasting things. It's a short list. But the list of eternal things is even shorter. You know why? Because eternal doesn't just mean it will go on and on. Eternal means that it had no beginning. Something that has no beginning and no end. It goes on and on and on forever into eternity past. It goes on and on and on forever into eternity future. And you thought the list of everlasting things was small. Guess what? The list of eternal things is even smaller. Let's see what's on that list. That's the whole list. There's one thing that is eternal and it's God. He had no beginning and he will have no end. You and I are everlasting, but we had a beginning. There was a time when you did not exist in any way, shape, or form. But there's never been a time when God did not exist. Only God is eternal. Now, should we be using the word everlasting or eternal in this case? Actually, both, both issues fit God because God is on both of those lists, right? Um, and so the Hebrew word can be translated either way, everlasting or eternal, and both of them are correct. But the context here tells us that we should be using the word eternal. That's the most precise word here because we're speaking about the only thing on the list of eternal things, God himself. That's what makes it so clear that he is in fact God. Remember John chapter 1, right? John chapter 1. He, he was the word of God, right? He was in the beginning with God and, and he was before all things and by him all things were created. He was in the beginning. So when we're talking about Jesus, we are talking about God because there's only one thing that is eternal, and that's God. And so what are we getting here? We're getting this statement that clears up the controversy about who Jesus is. He is not just a really good man, no matter what people say. He is not just a healer. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a prophet. He is the, those things and so much more. Isaiah tells us 750 years before the time of his coming that he is eternally God. Jesus, our eternal father. So from their vantage point, um, this child who will be born already is. 
This child who will one day come is already here. And from our vantage point, looking back on the cross, this child who laid in a manger 2,000 years ago, so far away from us, so far away from us in time, is still the light of the world because he is eternal father. That makes Christmas every bit as relevant today as it was in the time of Isaiah. It makes Christmas every bit as relevant today, 2,000 years after the time when the angels declared glory to God in the highest and the shepherds came and bowed down. Christmas is every bit as relevant today as it was then. No matter how dark the world was, no matter how dark the world has become, you can write this down in your heart and keep it forever. Jesus is the light of the world. The eternal Father has pierced the darkness and he is the light. I know this is a heavy season for us. I know that this has been unlike any Christmas, and Christmas can be a heavy season anyway. But I know that the time that we're going through this particular Christmas is challenging. But oh, my friends, if you need a reason to celebrate, even during a dark time, there it is. No matter how dark things get, Jesus is still the light of the world. We have so much to celebrate this Christmas. Now, before we go on, let me just comment for a second on the fact that this eternal being, this child who was given to us, is called not just eternal guy or eternal dude or something like that. He's called eternal father. And that's important. The words of Scripture are all really important. He's not just, we're not just told he's eternal. We're told that he's the eternal father. But what does that mean? Um, very few things are worse for a child than being without a father. Very few things are worse than a family, for a family, worse for a society, worse for a culture than the absence of good fathers. I'm sure you have seen the statistics. I'm sure you know the story. But fatherlessness is epidemic in our society and it's devastating. We need fathers. When you look at the statistics, kids living in a home without their father in the year 1960... Not so long ago, in the year 1960, 7% of American children were living in a home without their father. Today, that number is 43%. That is a 600% increase in just those few decades. And when you look at the statistics from fatherless homes, they are devastating. I mean, they will make you cry. 63% of teen suicides fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts, fatherless homes. 71% of uh, teenage pregnancies. 75% of teens with some sort of chemical abuse problem. 80% of rapists. 85% of children diagnosed with um, behavioral disorders. 
85% of incarcerated youth, and the list goes on and on and on, from fatherless homes. Fatherlessness is arguably one of the most, if not the most, devastating cultural impacts in our society today. Man, oh man, do we ever need a great father? Do we ever need an eternal father? The child who was born to us, the son who was given to us, he is nothing less than our eternal father. And let's remember that this, let's remember this Christmas that every time we look at a nativity scene and we see that babe in the manger, every time we see him on an ornament or a Christmas card or, or something like that, let us remember that that tiny little helpless child is actually our eternal father. And what does that mean? It means no matter how dark it gets, daddy's here. Uh, and you know, just think about this. No matter how old you are, even if you're my age or older, I'll bet you can relate to this idea that when you were little, there were those times in your room at night in the darkness, you heard a noise or, or saw a shadow move on the wall and you became terrified in the midst of the darkness. And when you cried out, what did you need more than anything? When dad comes into the room, it changes everything. See, in a time of darkness, we have an eternal father. No matter how dark it gets, our daddy's home. It's going to be all right. Now listen, I, I know that, that for some of us, when we think of a father, we don't think happy thoughts. I know that for some of us, our emotions are only painful ones when it comes to thinking of a father. But when you think of Jesus, our eternal father, you need to remember what we're talking about. First of all, don't get this theologically confused, right? Don't, when, when Jesus, the babe in the manger, is called the eternal father, don't get that confused with God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Jesus is the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, and there, and he's not the same, right? But it's talking about his father-like attributes when Isaiah calls him eternal father. So Isaiah is not saying that the Son is the Father. He's just referring to his fatherly qualities. And when you think of those qualities, don't get them mixed up with the imperfect fathers we all know. Think instead of a perfect father. What would a perfect father look like? None of us has ever seen one. What, what would a perfect father look like? He would be perfectly faithful at all times. He, he would be sacrificial. He would be incredibly wise and, and um, undeniably strong. He would be a protector. He would be a sense of security, right? A perfect father? That's the idea that Isaiah has in mind when he calls Jesus eternal father. Unto us is born one who will always be faithful. One who will always be sacrificial, will always be wise, will always be a strong protector for us. What a treasure was held in that stinking feeding trough in a cave outside of a little town called Bethlehem so very long ago. Eternal Father. Now there's one more title we have to get to in uh, Isaiah 9-6. One more messianic name. He's called the Prince of Peace. 
I love how Isaiah says this. If we look at uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, he says of the Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. There will be no end to his kingdom or of peace. The Prince of Peace. Oh, how desperately we need peace. Listen, wherever you are right now, just do this with me. Inhale, take a deep breath and let it out. Peace. Comfort. Relaxation. Calm. How desperately we need peace. And imagine how these words must have impacted the people of Israel and Judah in Isaiah's day. They were living in turmoil. The nation was war-torn. They had only known turmoil and devastation for generations. Brother was at war with brother. They were in constant conflict with the surrounding countries. Very similar, if you think about Israel's uh, existence today as a nation, surrounded by countries who hate them and constant skirmishes. People walking around with weapons because you never know when war is going to break out. Peace is the last word you would think of to describe their society. And God comes along and speaks into that darkness and promises a child who will be given, who will be the prince of peace. And he says, there will be no end to peace when the government is upon his shoulders. It's a message that they needed to hear. It's a message we need to hear today. It's the Christmas message. What does the Christ child bring? Oh, what did the angels proclaim to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace. The babe in the manger is the prince of peace. And it's only in him, it's only through him that we can ever have peace with God. Because of the sin in our lives, we have enmity with God. And the scripture says we need peace with God and there's only one way to get it. In Romans chapter 5 verse 1, it talks about this. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way peace with God comes. Jesus told his disciples something very similar in John chapter 14 verse 27. He says this. John chapter 4. There we go. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. No trouble. No fear. Peace. And where does that peace come from? The Prince of Peace. You see, there is peace with God, which is priceless, and it only comes through Jesus. That's Romans 5.1. But as if that were not enough, he also offers us what the Bible calls the peace of God, the, that peace that surpasses understanding. It carries us through this life in even the hardest times. Who is the babe in the manger? He's the source of peace with God. He's the source of the peace of God. And if we need anything in this life, it's peace. Do you have that peace? If not, 
then you don't understand what I'm talking about. Because Paul calls it the peace of God which surpasses understanding. It can't be explained. It can't be, can't be understood intellectually. It's something that can only be understood when it's experienced. The peace of God that surpasses understanding. Now, if you know Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. Because you have undoubtedly been through hard times. Maybe you're going through hard times right now. But there is this abiding peace. This overwhelming joy that, that, that comes with that peace. That only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus. Why not sit back this Christmas and enjoy the peace? Even in the midst of all the challenges, why not soak in the peace of God? Why not revel in peace with God? Why not celebrate that peace? It surpasses understanding but it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Who is the babe in the manger? He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. May your Christmas season be filled with the experience of that mighty God. And if you don't know him, all of that could change right now. It's, it's not some giant undertaking. It's the simplest of things. He offers us this gift at Christmas time and always. That if we would just accept the gift of reconciliation, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of Christ's sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins, we too can be restored in a relationship with Jesus. And all you have to do is ask him. All you have to do is submit, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I know that I'm lost and I don't have this peace that I so desperately need. I'm afraid of the dark, God. Won't you come, eternal Father? Come into my life. Bring me peace with God. Bring me the peace of God. I will submit to you as Lord in my life. And from this day forward, you will be my king. Oh God, come into my life and set me free from my sin. You can have that assurance today. If you invite Jesus into your heart, what better Christmas gift could you ever hope to get? The eternal Father, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, the wonderful Counselor has come and you can experience him. And if you do, it'll be the greatest Christmas you've ever had. Father, we want to say thank you that while we were lost in darkness, you sent your son, to be the great light. We thank you for your incredible grace and forgiveness and the way that you reach out to us, that we don't have to jump through a bunch of religious hoops. We just have to trust you. We just have to love you. We just have to give our lives to you. And I pray for each person who is hearing this message today that you would move in each of our hearts. Father, bring us that peace. Bring us that protection, that assurance that comes from an eternal Father and a relationship with him. God, we love you. We thank you. We give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.